The Napa Know How Motorsport Academy is back, bigger than ever, in 2022. Led by supercar star Bryce Forward as the driver mentor, the Academy offers tuition to all racers aged 13 and up, giving insights into the world of racecraft and analysis, plus information on health, sponsorship and media. On top of the information you'll receive, you can win regular prizes and best of all, it's free to join. Get involved at the new Napa Motorsport Asia Pacific Facebook and Instagram pages or visit the Napa Australia or New Zealand websites to sign up and be part of know-how that is synonymous with Napa. Start your engines. This is the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racer Podcast. Welcome back to episode four. You have shown great taste and intelligence for joining us at episode four of the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. I'm Darren Smith and my good friend, sometimes Gary O'Brien is with me as well. <laughs> my eating buddy, Daz, how are you? Well, I've had a feed, which is good because otherwise I would have run out of energy halfway through yeah, uh, our episode four. And uh, I keep I keep saying, I've said it three times now, Gaz, who, who would have thought? Here we are, episode four. Uh, the Napa Motorsport Academy supported uh, podcast here, www.napaparts.com.au forward slash academy. The academy is free service to improve the members racing and uh, it's proven to do so. They've got such a diverse amount of competitors from you know pretty much all forms of motorsport starting to join in on it. Well, we couldn't list the number of people that are involved at this stage. But what we've got to talk about tonight, we've got a, a special guest that Grant will have on from the Academy. We'll also be talking to our special guest for the evening. And then just a, a quick overview of what's been going on and what's coming up. Yes. So um, certainly the, the Academy is taking off big time. And uh, we're looking forward to what Grant's got with us as well. We'll be back straight after uh, Grant's segment here for the top of the show. And of course, we will be introducing uh, our guest for the evening. It's great to have Jude Bagwana on the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. Jude is a part of the Academy and has been following it through. He is currently racing in national level Australian Formula Ford. Jude, what's, uh, what's the big takeouts that you have uh sort of taken from the academy uh and and the portal that's uh, free for everybody oh uh, look you know thanks for having me on here grant um you know the napa academy is an awesome academy um it's got some great features um online for drivers like myself to tap into and uh and uh gain a little bit more knowledge um through some more experienced people like bryce forward um, and, you know, yourself in the marketing area. And, uh, yeah, it's an awesome academy to, to gain a bit more experience from and, um, you know, use that to better myself in my future racing career. Awesome. Of course, uh, racing for yourself was almost a foregone conclusion. You've got the surname Barguana. You are part of a dynasty of uh, Barguanas that are currently racing. Um, did you always feel that racing was going to be part of something that you did? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was pretty much born into it, you know, you know, a few days after the hospital at a racetrack and, um, didn't really have much option, um, other than racing cars, uh, never really got the opportunity to do soccer or it was either, you know, jump on a motorbike or in a go-kart. So, but, but, you know, I love it. I'm, I've caught the bug, the family's given it to me and I really enjoy it. You're going quite well in the national formula Ford championship this year what do you feel 
is your uh, future goal? What, where do you want to see your career progress to? Yeah, look, we've we've had a uh, tough start to the year, but it's it's starting to get better in the uh, in our championship, and we're gaining a few more points. And we had a good round at Winton last round, so that's been really positive. But um, uh, look, my ambitions. Look, I like the idea of the supercars. I think it's great, but my big goal would be to go overseas and race in some something endurance like GT, LMP, something like that. Thanks very much, Grant, for uh, catching up with uh, all of these people that are joining in on the Napa Academy. Really looking forward to seeing and getting some results. And we'll, we'll start to report back to uh, to our listeners as they come in. Indeed so. But now we turn our attention to our special guest this week. We've had some good ones in the past and we haven't let the team down with this one either. Paul Stokel. Hello and welcome, Paul Stokel. Yeah, good day, Gary, and good day, Darren. Listen, um, I went through a bit of your bio today, and it reads like a who's who of what what in in everything you could think of, dating back to the well, to the very start, which we we will guess is Stone late age times, <laughs> late nineties, let's say. About uh, no, we'll we'll go back a little bit further. About um, nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, in 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 circuit racing at the, in, at least yeah, yeah. I, we kicked off um uh, yeah this long time ago probably 1989 was formula v's which we did in tasmania and uh i'd come out of carts i'd done five years in karting back then and won some australian uh, some tasmanian titles i never got to the australian title level because we we didn't have the money to leave tasmania but um yeah when i finally got into formula v it sort of opened a door to do a formula ford test and we did a few local Coca-Cola rounds at the old Amaru years ago and um, went fairly successfully with with a couple of really smart engineers and that sort of steered me in the right direction, I guess, and got me started. Paul, you touched just quickly on a few years or five years in the Tasmanian karting. What led up to or what was young Paul, what was the dream in your eye when you reached out and put a go-kart in the shed and uh, dragged <laughs> the family out motor racing? That's a really good question. It was everyone asked me that and it just was just something I went I got taken to Baskerville Raceway which was my local track um watched it from the other side of the fence and and from that moment on I wanted to be a race car driver and then I discovered a magazine called Grand Prix International which a lot of older people would have heard of it was like the, the only way of seeing Formula One cars and the behind the scenes stuff with Formula One and um I just used to pour through those magazines and just looked at the drivers and looked at the cars and went now yeah, this is where I want to be because I want to be here and then from that moment on I don't know, I was probably seven, eight years old or whatever else. I just saved, well, I think we collected collected beer bottles or whatever we could to sort of fund the karting habit. And, you know, started when I was about 12 or 13 and there were very limited resources. We managed to sort of be fairly successful within the Tasmanian ranks. And then, um, yeah, eventually trying to figure out how to go national into motor racing was obviously a bigger step. But Again, did it without a lot of money and a lot of resources. So, yeah, luckily, I mean, I guess I was obviously fairly good at what I did. So it opened a few doors and got a, it got a few windows open. Well, well, starting with the Formula 4 Drive to Europe series, in your first year, you only had one race and finished 11th in the series, which says must have did pretty well in one race. And then, um, actually, I think it was a one race. Was it one race then or was it more than one? No, it was more than one. We did the... the the Amaru Coca-Cola series, which was, uh, I think, a three-round local New South Wales championship. And I did one race. 
and I get the car was actually it was an interesting car it was an old L1 which was probably I don't know what year it was but very old technology in comparison to Russell Engel and Mark Larkham and those guys were rocking up in the factory Van Diemen's and a fairly astute gentleman by the name of Wally Story was actually engineering the car back then and Wally was a pretty smart operator as everyone knows he's gone on to bigger and better things and Wally put us in the right direction we got had the right car for that particular track and I think I ended up on pole at my first ever race so I won the actual preliminary and then in front of Larko and Engel and then uh, we were second in the main in the main race so that really did sort of launch me from nowhere to where the hell did he come from sort of thing so it was a pretty handy stepping stone and it was just some smart operators you know rather than trying to buy a car and fund it ourselves we went with experienced people and it sort of paid off yeah wally himself had his own uh, <laughs> career in formula ford as well he he had a bit of a start and did some some own running and uh, he would have known about the car that was underneath you as well yeah absolutely no smart operators and uh, steve Weason, i think was the engine builder at the time and yeah just as I said, I think it taught me that if you do everything properly, you know, rather than sort of you're better off having a small budget and doing something or, you know, putting a budget towards one thing rather than trying to do lots of things and end up, you know, being very diluted. So we ended up getting some results and that sort of started the ball rolling. So one of you, my, one sorry, of my favourite motorsport sponsors, Paul, and I've, I've spoken to you about this many times, was the, the Blue Banner pickled onions on the uh on the formula v how just just a quick quick quip how did you come about getting blue banner pickled onions on a race car i don't actually know to see the truth it was through a contact of mine that was helping me at the time danny newland he was um sort of mentoring me at the time and he he opened the door somewhere i think it was actually owned by four roses company or something back then and um dave davis was actually the guy in charge and he still keeps in touch to this day and i think it was uh yeah fairly unique but um one of my engine builders actually used to love them he used to have them for breakfast so we used to have cartons of them there and he just <laughs> hoe into these things i'd walk in in the morning and go you're kidding me you're eating what i mean for breakfast and he goes he just loved them he just loved them that's <laughs> like my co-host <laughs> oh, no, i don't eat onions at all pickled <laughs> tissue pickled um yeah where i was going to go was uh, 1990 in the formula four drive of the europe full series six races second to uh, none other than russell engel yeah that year was fairly strained budget-wise. They introduced, well, I guess the Van Diemen team discovered that if you buff the tyres down, it became they became a lot quicker, but they didn't last very long, obviously, because there wasn't much uh, tread left. So we were stuck on a bit of a tyre budget and ran out of money. I think I did five of the seven rounds and ran out of money and missed South Australia. I was running with Phoenix Motorsport in a Reynard. And then um, Mick Kouros, who was owned Swift at the time, sort of, Helped me get into the last round, which gave me enough points to finish second. I think we won. So I won, won a race for Reynard that year and won a race for Swift. And and that um, little contact was Swift opened the door overseas. So I ended up in the UK and, and did a factory test with the with the Swift team over there, which Mick Kouros had organised. And, uh, you know, that could have gone a lot of places. I think I was offered a very good deal in that. But I also had other things on the, you know, simmering away in the background. So I, I chased them rather than go the Formula Ford direction. So actually, so that would have been 1991. You would have been overseas in, in England and then came back here for 92 and the Australian Drivers' Championship. Uh, I guess that's the next step up from Formula Ford. It was at the time to go to Formula Holden. You want to talk a, bit, a little bit about those uh, championships? Yeah. You won two of them and uh, Formula Holden as a, as a category. Yeah, it's look. It's funny. I think, I think you'll not, see Gaz on the wall behind him. There's three gold stars there, mate. Not just the two. So, uh, <laughs> where did that bit out? 
there's also there's also there's also this is not good for podcast territory but there's also the Gilles Villeneuve car I can see there good good choice <laughs> yeah one of my heroes um what was I saying we, we went we went to the UK in in 1990 and I did a Formula 3000 test which was a one-off thing that happened uh, through a contact of mine that happened to know somebody and ended up being the guy that had funded Julian, Julian Bailey to Formula One. So they offered me a test in the UK with the Magic team, which was the winning Formula 3000 team. So I went from a Formula Ford, which I'd done three races in or something like that. And, and during the 1990 year, I disappeared overseas and did this test with 3000, which went really well. Like Mansell Magic, who owned the, owned the car, raved about it you know i think i did about 65 laps around snedderton before my neck muscles sort of gave away and and i'd never driven a car with even slicks and wings so it was an exciting time and to to, to be over there and watching you know be part of a, a british team and been offered a, a, the british championship and the european championship with but then i guess the realities struck me that hang on i've got here without money and now suddenly they're asking for you know in, in the millions to get to the next level which was just mind-blowing for me but I'd sort of skipped a lot of levels. I'd gone from Formula Ford straight to 3000 and there was an opportunity, but it, it sort of went begging. And that's when I came back to Australia, basically without money and a few debts to pay from the Formula Ford days. And uh, luckily I was picked up by Barana Engineering in South Australia, who were just starting to, to put together a Formula Holden team. And we're using cars that were, were 3000 cars that we'd just been over there testing. So it was quite a unique opportunity. So the Barana team ultimately, at the end of the day in the Formula Holden era, were the team to be with. And uh, through three gold stars that you won and a couple of other seasons either side of that, they really did prove to be the powerhouse. Malcolm Ramsey ran a very tight ship. He uh, would come down pretty hard on his drivers if they weren't doing exactly what they should be doing. And uh, just tell us a little bit about Malcolm Ramsey and, and the experience of traveling and running with that very successful outfit. Yeah, look, Malcolm was, it was awesome. You know, like he gave me an opportunity and I had to work fairly hard to stay there and we made mistakes. Well, I made mistakes. I guess I was fairly early in my driving career and had a few shunts here and there, which didn't go down very well. I think I was on probation there at one stage and on, on my last legs, but you know, it all, it all came together and we were, you know, I gelled with the cars. We eventually got the team and the engineers together. And, you know, one of those mechanics that had actually worked on my car in the UK ended up working for us in Australia. So that shortcut the process. And we had, you know, they, they do, they left nothing to chance. You know, Barana were the first ones to get to the track. They were the last ones to leave. You know, the gearbox was pulled apart every night. Everything was crack tested. It all went back together again. And it was just a different level. And it, um, you know, it's been really, I guess, hard over the years to sort of, be with teams that don't take it to that level because you know what it takes to win championships. And, you know, we, I think over three, four years of racing, I think we might've not finished two races or something silly. It was crazy. So me mechanically wise, the cars were hundred percent reliable and, you know, we won championships and we had good speed. So, and it was good. We had a good, good, good co-drivers on the way. There's Jason Bright joined us in the last year and um, Mark Webber sort of had a, a, a cameo appearance in 94, 95, I think it was. Um, and Greg Murphy was my teammate when we did the New Zealand and the Pan Pacific Championship as well. Right, I was running on from there. Of course, a uh, couple of uh, supercar opportunities cropped up. Yeah, we just I did some co-driving. I did Bathurst about six or seven times with various different teams along the way. Um, Alan Heafy, actually, I know, you know you had him on the as a guest last week, and I did listen to that podcast and. Alan um, actually gave me my first ever test in a V8 supercar with alongside Wayne Gardner. So that was great. And, and Alan was keen to have me there, obviously, like any team that needed money. And 
I didn't have any, so <laughs> that went begging. But um, eventually, you know, I did get a drive with them, and I did end up co-driving with Wayne at one one particular year, which was which was an awesome experience to be part of. You know, being associated with a, a world champion is is something pretty special. And you know, love or hate Wayne, he was he was bloody fast and he was good at what he did. Um, yeah, just just yeah, very different driving style. So it was very difficult to adapt um, myself to his car, which was. I think everyone sort of that drove with him found the same problem. You know, Neil Crompton would probably vouch for that same thing. He was very different in the way he did things and ultimately very quick, but not necessarily the way, you know, a V8 supercar needed to be set up. So it was a bit of a challenge, but um, V8s was never something I ever looked at. You know, um, I was offered tests in various different things, but to be honest, we were still focused on Formula One. I really wanted to I knew I had a door over there and it was sort of half a jar and we'd tested 3000 and had opportunities to get to the next level. So I wasn't focusing too much on V8s. And to be honest, I thought it was something that would come along later on. And then the world changed and suddenly they looked for young drivers and I got a bit older and the whole thing sort of missed me and uh, not having funding didn't help either. So um, I ended up moving to Melbourne from Adelaide, which I was driving a Barana and then went started working for Lamborghini. Um, and Lotus as well. So they, they gave me an opportunity, the distributors for Lamborghini and Lotus basically were looking at setting up a sports car team and, and I fit, fitted the bill. So away we went from there. So Paul, a couple of things like we, we are, a, I guess, a, a grassroots podcast and we are representing Napa Parts. You've touched on four or five times already the, the funding, the how to do it. The, you know, you've got, you've got the hands and feet and the head and everything else to do it. You've even got the, you know, the customised, stylized Stokel S on your helmet and all of that sort of thing. How is it that you can try and get more funding for motorsport? Have you found the secret or is it just an elusive thing? No, that's why I'm not in V8 supercars or Formula <laughs> 1. I, ne- I never did figure it out. Yeah, I was very bad at it. I guess, to be honest, I, you know, I, I wasn't the, the perfect race driver in that I, I, want, I didn't like the actual off-the-track off stuff. And to this day, I still won't chase that limelight side of things. I'm not really interested in it that much. I just want to get in a car and drive as fast as I can. And, I, and that's what that's what gives me a buzz, you know, like I still to this day, you know, jump in race cars and, you know, you can literally sit in there and, and do what you do and you feel at home. Whereas getting out of the car and having to do PR stuff was always hard work for me. Um, we did it and it was good fun, but I never really got very successful at getting money, I guess, you know, trying to fund, trying to fund run motor racing. It, it needs that side of it. So the young drivers of today get a lot more help on that side of things. And I think the coaching side of it and the mentoring side and the um, developing, you know, sponsorship opportunities is, is a lot more readily available. You know, even driver coaching, you know, God, God we didn't know what a driver coach was, you know, back in my day. And now I am, am one. It was, it's quite bizarre to sort of see the, how, how the world has changed and we've moved forward, but yeah, no, don't ask me about money. Not good at it. Yeah. Interesting. You should mention about the, the outside of the car business and, you see some of the supercar drivers at other meetings and they're just a whole different personality. They're so relaxed and not have to go through all that mental strain of not just being a driver, but also to be a, a publicist machine for the team and sponsors. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and that's part of it now, you know, and it's, it's got to be part of it. If someone's you know, looking at progressing through the sport, they have to, they can't take the attitude I took and, and stick their head in the sand about that sort of stuff. You know, it's got to be happening from an early age. And if they haven't got the money behind them, they're not, they're not going to be successful. It's simple as that. You know, it's, it, the money's got, uh, is, it dictates your opportunities. And once you've, you know, proven yourself and you can get those opportunities, well, maybe it, you know, it leads to a career. But 
it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult one, that's for sure. Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuel to national and state-level motorsport. And its range of racing fuels includes the BP Supercars E85, which is available to grassroots races. For power and protection over pump fuel, Race Fuels imports the Elf Race 102, as used by Porsche Carrera Cup and the Touring Car Masters. More info on Race Fuels E85 and Elf Race 102 is available at racefuel.com.au. Well, the the fire in the belly, the you know the Indonesian Grand Prix, the Malaysian Grand Prix, the New Zealand Grand Prix, um, you stood on the top step at the support category at the Australian Grand Prix for Formula Holden in '93 as well what is is that the sort of stuff that you look back and go that's the stuff that keeps me going you know day after day after day chasing you know more drives in the sport is the the fact that yep that podium is not too far away it's in fact it's the next race uh well it certainly was back then yeah like i you know at one stage i think i did a qualifying lap at adelaide at the grand prix and and to this day, I've never driven that fast in my life. Unfortunately, I never finished the lap. <laughs> I ended up in the wall. But I honestly, I think, you know, I look back at that lap and it was it was almost like I was out, out of body type thing. It was an amazing experience. And, you know, people talk about being in the zone. I think, yeah, okay, you can get in the zone, but I think there is different zones. You know, there is, and I, the very, very, very best of them are in that zone more regularly. And that's the difference. You know, I don't, you know, people say, do you have off days? And you go, yeah maybe a little bit you know maybe you miss an apex or two here or there but i think professional drivers don't have really bad off days you know they 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 get to a certain level but to go to that last couple of tenths or whatever it might be that you know makes you a a formula one driver versus a, a whatever else you know that's that's a very small minority of people that can do that and i think yeah i used to enjoy trying to get to that that level and you know formula holden and and formula 3000 cars and the amount of grip they had back in those days was and they weren't easy cars to drive you know they were very difficult cars to drive so getting getting the chance to drive one of those quickly around some really good circuits and breaking a few out records here and there is is certainly what um kept me involved so the racing in in open wheelers effectively was that sort of finished by the late 90s uh, I, I noticed there was a couple of drives there in the early 2000s, but main, most of the time you were in cars with Bruce on them. Yeah, not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> just, just how it ended up. Sports cars interested, like obviously the Lamborghini Connection and Lotus. And, um, you know, I started doing Targa rallies as well, which um, which I absolutely love. You know, Targa's been one of those favourite events of mine. But, yeah, look, sports cars interest me. Touring cars never did, you know, like two-litre super tourers, when they came around, there was a couple of opportunities which licensing dramas caused caused issues and stopped it. But they they sort of had me a little bit interested, but um, the eight supercars, to be honest, in my day, I think they've improved, well, they have improved massively, you know, the technology and the downforce and the amount of grip they've got is just way different to what we had in the old days. And they weren't a lot of fun to drive, you know, especially after you've driven a, a Formula Holden that went around the track so fast it was ridiculous. And then you get in a, a V8 supercar and you feel like you could get, you could walk around the corners faster. So it was not really what I ever wanted to do. I wanted to drive something that had lots of downforce and, lot, and lots of speed. And, you know, GT cars and LMP cars are obviously something I was looking towards. And that was where I was focusing my efforts rather than V8 supercars. Gary, it's uh, much the same story as we heard from Tim Macro, isn't it? In, in episode two, about wanting to stay in that purest form and 
and both Tim and Paul Goldstar, multiple gold stars between them, are, are telling a fairly similar story, aren't they? They certainly are. It's interesting that um, while they, I guess the GT stuff was fairly close, or well, the closest you were going to get to um, open wheeler type aero and performance, but I did notice that you did a little bit of uh, production car racing as well. And I wanted to touch particularly on the Volkswagens in the production car championship. Uh, they were controversial to say the least. Uh, a lot of people regarded them a little bit as sports today in Sydney at the time. Um, I think the, the, the golfs we were in were, were allowed some freedoms to bring them up to speed, which, which, you know, they, we proved to be competitive. Um, they had their, their drawbacks and their downfalls, which, you know, has been fairly well documented over the years and, but yeah, look at that stage. I was driving for Volkswagen, and it was, you know, it was a factory deal, so you're getting paid. So you know, that was where I'd always, I'd always sort of base my career around. Well, I, I can't fund motor racing; it's got to pay my way. That's what I do for a job. So it hasn't been massively lucrative, but you know, I've managed to get through the sport, and nine times out of ten, sort of make an earner out of it, which is what my life was, you know, focused on trying to make a living out of motorsport. So. And it's still to this day, I'm still going around and around in circles, whether it be coaching or whether it be organising days, I'm still doing the same thing. So I guess it, it beats digging ditches at the end of the day. So it's um, it's uh, not a bad not a bad hobby. <laughs> so, Paul, just take you back to the finish of the Open Wheelers and then a, a nice little, I guess, sweet deal came from Lotus with the 50th anniversary Elise and a, and a year in GTP chasing around the likes of John Bow and Neil Crompton in Ferraris and, and guys like that. And you went out there in that little Rover engined uh, Sport 190, thrashed it around. It also led to the same team taking up the, the Lamborghini side of things. And I guess as far as profile goes, that's probably where your career hit its highest profile. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, strangely enough. I mean, I, I don't consider that the, the pinnacle of my driving career because it was probably earlier than that, but nobody recognizes you know open wheelers in this country you know, and unfortunately that's always going to be the case so you're either a V8 supercar driver or you do something unusual and the Lamborghini certainly attracted attention you know the Diablo when we ran it was was a pretty awesome car um it was it was a bit of a bit of a handful initially but it became quite good and it was a good balance and one of the nation's cup days sort of took off and we you know the the Monaro the 427 Monaro was obviously introduced with a with the prime goal of the Winning the twenty-four hour race at Bathurst. Talking about sports sedans, Gaz. There's your sports <laughs> yeah, yeah. sedan. Oh. Yeah, let's let's not go there. Um, <laughs> it sounded good though. But there's apparently about twenty or forty of them that have been built out there somewhere. You just got to find them. I'm not sure where they ended I, up. I seen I seen one at the motor <laughs> show one year, but we, I think it actually got uh, sold to a collector somewhere. It was red, but it didn't have the wing on it like the uh, race cars did. No, I think there was there was minimum build quantities and things they were meant to meant to provide to to race in that series and. I don't believe that ever happened, but anyway, look, it was it made for interesting competition. It obviously had an Australian input and Australian touch to it, being a Monaro, and um, but they did, you know, get to the endurance races, and that's what that car was designed for, and they they did they did smash us in that result. But we managed to beat them to the championships. You know, we had an overall package that was a good mixer of power and grip and longevity in the races, I guess, and that that got us through. So it was good fun, and we won a couple of Nations Cup championships, and um, yeah, they, it was good fun. So the, the one the one thing I wanted to ask you about, particularly being in GT cars, to rock up 
to a Baffus 12 hour in a Fiat Arbav. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't quite get to that with Alan Heafy, did we? He no, just, he just no. said the guys at Fiat Chrysler, he said, What are you on drugs? <laughs> what was it like? <laughs> what was it like driving those things? I know they had that radar set up in them, so you could see when the fast cars are coming. But I guess that didn't give you a lot of time either. Yeah, believe it or not, it was actually okay because you sort of that that I think it was a can. What was it called? Can collision avoidance radar or something? It was so it basically highlighted every car behind you, and if if they were if they were green, they were catching you very quickly. If they're orange, uh, they were catching you mildly. If they were yellow, they're catching you, but not a bit further away. And if they were red, you were pulling away from them. So I didn't see many red cars, to be honest. We, we Most of them were, were fairly bright green, but it did give you a really good idea where they are. And to be honest, I don't think I looked in the mirror. Is that, that, that rear vision camera with, the, with the, the radar system was enough to sort of go, right, here's a car, stay to the right, car goes past on the, you know, stay to the left, car goes past on the right and, and press on because you know there's nothing else there. Even, even when it was sort of dark, you still had a fair idea where the cars were. So I never had any problems and it was, it was actually good fun. The car was sequential gearbox and I think we did um, one th- two 31s around there in, in qualifying, which, you know, you look put it in a production car terms, it was, it was fairly quick. Yeah, it would have been. Um, mind you, if you didn't have that radar, it would have been a bit of a nightmare <laughs> using the rear mirror all the time. Yeah, it would have been. Especially for myself and Luke Yildon, who were the two lead drivers in each of the cars, it wasn't too bad. But we had the journalists had literally had a baptism of fire, you know, throwing into a 12-hour race at Bathurst after <laughs> just qualifying to get their licences. So it was like, my God, here we're going to get through this. But you know, to to their credit, you know, Alan's a pretty smart operator and he set it up to a point where we all managed to get through and I don't think anyone complained much about us. So it was all good. Yeah, Paul, just um, going back some international stuff, you've done you know, a little bit of stuff with uh, going to China with the Exige going back well, probably 15 years ago now um, and other bits and pieces like that that you've done. And you also mentioned your, I guess, your love affair. And it's been for quite some time now, the, the Targa, uh, the Targa series and the Targa Tasmania getting to go home and burn around the roads uh, in your in your home state. What um, what do you see? You know that that stuff overseas with the siege or, or the the Targa type events. Um, what do you see that you're going to continue on doing? Um, oh, to be honest, I don't know. Look, Targa Tasmania was one of those untick boxes on my list. So coming back recently and, and winning that and winning two more championships or Tarmac Rally Championships was was um, I guess the first time I've been back and funded something myself, you know, because it was just one of those unticked boxes and I wanted to do it. And, um, you know, I, I really do love Targa. It's a great, great fun event. It's, it is at that level though, you know, seriously dangerous and it always, you know, you can't change that. It's a, whether it be dirt rallying or every tarmac rallying, you're, in among, you're on a country road and you're in amongst trees and objects that don't move. So you, it's inherently dangerous and it's not something I want to do forever no it's you know if someone hadn't came up with a budget to do something and it was competitive I'd certainly have a look at doing it again but um I certainly do it with my eyes open and um you know it's it's a bit different to circuit racing I'm really enjoying the GT stuff you know at the moment I'm, I'm driving with Gary Higgin in the in the KFC Audi and having a ball to be honest I mean we're not not outright competitive as far as the pros are concerned but in the pro-am or in the in the am championship we're doing okay and and it's it's good you know, mentoring a driver that, you know, hasn't had a lot of experience in a, in a car like a GT car and, and trying to get them quicker and tune them up. And, um, you know, Gary's, we've had some good results in that. So it's been good fun. Well, going on your recent result, uh, a first in class at 
the Bathurst 12 hours uh, not to be sneezed at. Yeah, well, that's we got. That's what we went there to do, and you know the, the way the rules sort of went this year, it gave us an opportunity to run as a as an amateur there, and it, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard. People laugh and go, "How can you possibly be an amateur after being a professional your years?" But yeah, it's it's just something that happens in GT racing. You get to a certain age, and they call you an amateur. So, um, you know, I I didn't race for probably nearly ten years while I've been up here. Sort of moved up to Queensland and did a lot of my racing. I did a little bit of Carrera Cup and some mini challenge stuff, but there hasn't been a lot of racing. So yeah, you can't sort of call me professional, but by the same token, it's, um, <laughs> it is interesting racing as an am, but I'm um, happy to do that. It's good fun. Can I just dig onto that a little bit, Paul? You did, you know, you have sat on the side because there was these rankings, silver, gold, platinum, whatever they were, whatever, one, two, three, ABC, whatever they may be. You were sort of a victim of your own success for some time there because they held you at a pro level, even though you hadn't competed you know, as a professional for over a decade. How does that deep down inside a race car driver, how does that affect your psyche when you just want to go racing? Yeah, it's an, it's annoying. But, you know, I got to a stage where I needed to, you know, earn a living and have, you know, set up a career and doing what I'm doing up here at the moment is, it was, was sort of to priority. So I guess when you're younger, you can put every thinking minute into that sort of thing and try and make it happen. But yeah, it was frustrating because there was opportunities and, but at the end of the day, I was still a gold rank driver, so I, I couldn't run as an as an AM anywhere. So it was um, it was it was difficult, and you know, without budgets and things, that didn't help either. So you know, I haven't done too much in the way of GT racing, but it's, um, <laughs> it is quite funny now that as I get older, I'm getting more drives. It's bizarre. Is it a pleasing thing, pleasing situation to be into when you do get in with Gary's car, and it, it has been updated to current spec? But at Phillip Island last year, you were in an off spec car, and you were running with the Chas Mostets and the SVGs at the, the front of the field in, in similar equipment. And you were, you were right there with them in an out, outdated car and probably running a setup that was a compromise to you. Is that a rewarding thing as a, let's call you a more experienced race car driver um, to, to go on with? It is. I guess that's what, what keeps me motivated in that sort of side of it. It's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, I'm there to, to do a job with Gary and, and to do the best we can and, we we work on setups that you know work for him and for me but um ultimately to go to go quicker you know i would take the car to a point where he's not happy with it so it is a little bit compromised but um but it's still pretty cool that you can punch out lap times not far off the pros and you know you look at the difference and how much racing they're doing it's um you know i i think all i ever needed was justification that you know i was good enough to to do go on and do things you know we won a lot of championships and won different things, but it was always very spasmodic racing because it was where the opportunities, the doors opened and it didn't require money or, or you know, I need, you know, need to earn a living as well. So it wasn't as consistent as some drivers. And these days, you know, the good drivers just seem to be driving all the time, which is fantastic. I never had that opportunity, but um, it is very um, satisfying to sort of be out there and mixing it with them at, you know, maybe not quite at their level, but still having good fun with them. It's interesting that we're a grassroots podcast, as you know, to um, actually see that you have had time in other cars. You mentioned the minis, of course, but in more recent times, uh, Australian Trans Am in the Ford Mustang up in Queensland, uh, TA2 muscle cars, which seems to be a real growth area in the sport at the moment. Your thoughts on them? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. TA, TA2 is an interesting category. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, good... Um, you know, a good balance of power and no grip. And I think from a, I think if someone's quick in that, they, they'll be quick in anything, you know, that's a, it's a good category. 
it seems to be relatively economical in comparison to a lot of national category or you know state then come national categories out there so yeah a good a good formula and seems to work well um probably doesn't steer towards a, a gt career or anything like that it's a very different car to drive compared to to those sort of cars and you know i guess adapting to all these cars over the years has been whether it be front wheel drive or rear wheel drive or four wheel drive you know there's a lot of cars i've driven over the years and adapting is is you know something you've got to be able to do daniel ricardo <coughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it is one of those things where you, you, I guess you just have to, you have to be able to sort of adapt and, you know, anyone that's good in those cars and, you know, coming up through grassroots, that's a, that's a, a great aim for someone to get to that CA2 level and then see where it goes from there. Because once you get past there, it's all going to start involving a lot more professionalism. Is that um, um, a tin top avenue, whereas opposed to say GTs or open wheelers, maybe Formula Ford and down that path instead? Where if you're making a choice between a tin top or an open wheeler, how do you where do you start? Which one would you start in? Oh, I mean personally, you know, an open wheeler every day. You know, Formula Ford, why it's not a national category. Well, I think it will be. I think it will come back. But the question I I ask is is if you had your mindset on being a tin top racer, would you go the TA two path or something else, maybe? excels or toyotas or whatever or as opposed to the open wheeler class which you'd start with formula forward yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I i personally still think open wheelers are a better 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 starting ground you know like you're, you're driving a car that you can make it do whatever you want to do and i you know i've it's almost like you've got to dumb your driving down to drive certain cars you know you if you, you want it to do things it can't do and when you've experienced what a car can do you know whether it be an open, an open wheeler obviously does a lot more than a normal road car you've almost got to detune yourself whereas if you wanted to tune yourself up to go the other way it might be a little bit more of a an adaption i guess but yeah to me like open wheelers is it's cutting you know especially at the formula ford level is is a bit like go-karts you know there's there's no purer racing than a go-kart and when you've got a, a bunch of guys that are very good at it, there is no room to breathe. So any category that I guess gives you that kind of grounding. You know, the XLs up here and everywhere, I think have become very popular and obviously budget has a lot to do with that. But even, even that, you know, the, I think at the pointy end, everyone's starting to spend money. So <laughs> there is no cheap way of going motor racing. It's just uh, depending on what level you want to do it at. Just someone wants to spend more money to win more often than everyone else, isn't it? It's like any category, you can, it's Formula One. <laughs> that's, how, yeah, exactly. that's how it is. Paul, something else that um, you're an early adopter in the world of professional driver coaching. You were one of the first guys of great experience that offered your services up to other drivers to teach them how to do it. And you've been doing it for, for a long time and ultimately it's ended up with uh, Paul Stokel's driving events or, or Stokel driving events, which has been your business for a long time now. You've been, been wheeling away at that. Something which really stood out, and I can't actually remember the year that it happened, but you took a driving school car with your mate Rick Kemp and Ian Baird and a new fresh face Liam Talbot and won a championship. How does that how does that sit in your <laughs> gratification? You know, like how does that how do you feel about that sort of experience? Yeah, well, it was it was pretty cool. You know, Liam approached me and you know, Liam's an unusual character in that he's had no background in motor racing, but loved to drive cars fast and was very good at it, you know, right out of the box. So to find Liam and then to sort of go, well, what have I got to do to win the championship? And I said, well, we probably need a car, which I've got, you know, we spend a bit of money. Um, we get a good engineer. We, we set the car up and we do the right things. And 
you know, by no means did he have the best equipment out there, but he was he was good enough to do the job. And and once again, I just I think I just called back on my experience over the years as a driver to go, well, you don't win anything without the best of, you know, the the little the little details, you know, would be someone that knows what they're doing on the setup versus, you know, somebody that's not quite so sure and everything else. So that's where, you know, I got Rick involved and, you know, Rick sort of recognised Liam's talent and we managed to, you know, win the, the Radical Australia Cup in his in his first year of racing, which was an awesome achievement for him. And, you know, he's obviously gone on to do bigger and better things. And now he's, um he's I'm back, back in the same category, not bumping doors with him. So it's pretty, pretty good, pretty good experience, actually. But, um yeah, I think it's, once again, it comes back to those early years of what I learned and then applying those to a race team and, I'm not a professional race team, you know, I don't, I don't have a race team or transporters and that's not my full-time job, but we do help a few guys up here. Liam was one of the early ones and we've got a couple of club races up here. I look after in some radicals and, you know, I look after their cars and help them at the track and do some coaching with them. And it's, um, yeah, it's good fun to see them progress. I'll have to send you the link to the napaparts.com.au forward slash academy and they can uh, jump on there and get a bit of uh you might even be able to get a bit of dietary advice and fitness, Paul, for uh, the future of your racing. Oh, that's a nice come down. <laughs> one of the, well, Paul, Paul in his career has been one of the hardest uh, training drivers known to man. Always had the uh, the gymnasium sponsor sticker on the side, sticker on the side of the helmet. So uh, was always found around the gyms, particularly when he was uh, was living in Melbourne. Basically, lived at the gym. Yeah, I think early days, you know, in Formula Holden in particular, was so physical, those cars to drive, that you just couldn't do without it. You know, it wasn't possible to, to drive at a good level without being relatively fit. And look, to be honest, you know, drivers these days, you know, have trainers and coaches and God knows what else, and they take it to a different level. But back in my day, I guess I was I was doing what I had to do and, you know, trying to, trying to stay on the straight and narrow. I'd like to ask a, another question you're mentoring certain drivers going around at the moment. Is there any standouts that, that you want to um, suggest that could uh, go places with the right backing? You know, it's, it's a funny question. There was a, there was a, there was a guy that came through um, sprint racing. They don't done sprints, hadn't done go-karts, hadn't done anything else. I was asked to come and um, do his license test. Uh, this was a few years ago. And, uh, I did his license test. He was 15 years old and uh, I got out of the car and went, he was in a Datsun 1200 uh, around Morgan uh, Park. So yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yes. And uh, I, got out, I got out of the passenger seat and his granddad looked at me and said, how'd you go? And I went, I don't think I've ever been in with somebody that is that smooth and that consistent, you know, on four or five laps in my life. You know, that was, he was a different experience. And to be honest, he's the only driver, you know, Matt Campbell was obviously the person I'm talking about, but, you know, I got out and went, wow, this kid's the real deal. Like, I've, I haven't seen that ever before. You know, some people, you know, some people you get out with and you go, yeah, they're pretty good and they improve and they get to a level and they sort of plateau and then they improve a little bit more. But Matt just had a, an unbelievable natural talent without any sort of really pre previous experience. I mean, that's the bit that blew me away. And, um, you know, I, I tried to help him a little bit and luckily, um, you know, there's some other people that sort of got involved with him that helped him even more. So, you know, Andy McElroy and those boys you know, managed to point him in the right direction and it's, you know, it's gone on to the point where he's at the, the absolute absolute pinnacle of, of Porsche now. So fantastic result. Yeah, well, actually, I bumped him a couple of years ago at um, Morgan Park. Uh, he'd just back from overseas where he'd been racing Porsches and um, he was at a historic meeting with his open wheeler and the Datsun 1200. And he had his brand spanking new sparkling Porsche driving suit on 
while he's doing his own tyres and looking after his car all on his own. So he's still very down to earth and everyone just treats him as though he's never left home. Yeah, I think that was the other bit that appealed to me. You know, it was more of that sort of that that grassroots level and no egos, no no expectations that, um, you know, he's not trying to prove anything. He, he can he can prove it, just gets in the race car and he proves it. He doesn't need to prove it off the track. So, yeah, he's uh, not, many, not many people out there like that. Like, he's a very unique talent. And as I said, you get one or two come through, but there's not too many as, as good as that. Paul, you've touched on a couple of, you know, almost household names in Australian motorsport with with Malcolm Ramsey, Wally Story, Alan Heafy, even, uh, even Pee Wee Siddle that you've worked in teams with over the years. Is there any one particular person that has stood out that you've gone yeah this would have really come to a grinding halt if it wasn't for that person um not really i mean every every one of those people and you know there's 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 millions more not millions but there's a lot more you know peter french was our engineer he's mechanical engineer with barana and he 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 adapt you know went into motor racing absolutely unknown and managed to turn our car into a winner straight away and he was a very very clever guy, you know, and when you start to mix with those sort of people, you can, you can see it straight away. So, you know, they've all contributed, you know, everyone's contributed to, um, to my career. And, and I think, you know, you tend to, you tend to steer towards people that you know, and you trust. And, you know, Rick Kemp's been another one of those people then, and we do a lot of testing and a lot of work together. We've set up and even driver coaching with different drivers. So, um, yeah, all those guys have been fantastic. You know, Alan Heafy's a very smart operator and, and prepares great cars. And, um, you know, Greg Siddle also was, you know, very good at what he did. So they're all, they're all great. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, it takes all those people to sort of put it up, you know, put the teams together. And it's a, there's a lot, of, a lot of pieces got to come together to win championships. And, you know, we've, we've won a fair few over the years. So obviously had the right people involved. The other, uh, the other thing is, and uh, people will start to ask you, you're, you're now a father with a couple of grown-up kids at home there, and uh, your career, is, is there a, a retirement letter coming? Is there a, I've thrown my hands up, I'm not doing this anymore, or, or does Paul Stoke will just do a John Bow and go on and on and on? I retired years ago. <laughs> I just There's, your I just, There's your headline. There's your headline. Well, I did. I retired years ago. I even announced it, but... Um, uh, but then I, you know, you can come out of retirement. There's nothing to say that you have to stay retired once you retire. So, now nah, look, I, there's, there's an opportunity to drive something. I, I and it's a, you know, I don't get a buzz out of just driving road cars, and that's it's it's nice to show people, and it's nice to demonstrate road, you know, nice nice road cars, whether it be Porsches or Ferraris or whatever else. It's good fun, but it it doesn't, you know, you get into, you know, it was great to get back into a GT car in the last couple of years because suddenly you're in a car that can way exceed you know, most people's driving abilities and that's actually a really cool car to drive. So yes, if there's a the right car along, I'll, I'll drive it until I'm not able to basically, because I really enjoy that process. And, and I guess that the GT world is sort of, you know, it's a good benchmark at the moment. I look at it and go, well, I'm still competitive. So while I'm still competitive, I'm happy to be there. If I, if I'm suddenly uncompetitive or feel like I, I'm not competitive, it's time to step down. I'm not going to hang around forever. That's for sure. You drove the the Diablo, which was, I guess, the rise of GT racing. It certainly wasn't a GT3 car, but it was it was a, at the start of what became a very popular form of motorsport and it continued on. The difference or the changes from, let's go right back, the SVR Diablo uh, versus, you know, the latest Audi you're driving, are they the same beast or are they just so poles apart? It's not funny. Uh, poles apart, yeah, <laughs> very, very much so. 
Um, but having said that, you know, look at look at the lap times we used to do around Phillip Island at Diablo. I think it was 32s or something like that, maybe into the 31s during qualifying on good tyres. And it had sit there and race at the 32s, 33s. You know, you, you look at that in comparison to today's cars, which have, you know, full ABS systems and multiple traction controls and maps and God knows whatever else in the cars to help the drivers. And yeah, they're going faster, but they're not going massively faster. You know, in the, in the old days, I don't think I'd ever used a computer and data until I was almost into V8 supercars. Like we had a, you know, in most of the cars that I drove, we didn't have technology. We had standard management systems. We had, we had those RPM counters that counted like a dial, you know, rather than digital and all this kind of stuff. It was amazing. But a, a taco yeah. kids. It was, it was, it was, it was I think I've got a couple of cars that got tacos. <laughs> but it was seat of the pants, even the Formula Holden. There was no data in the cars. When I started, it was get out of the car and get to your engineer and tell him what the car's doing, make changes, go back out, try it again. There was no fancy rulers to measure your performance. It was it was your backside that measured it, and you just relate that to the to the engineer. So that it was it was it's unusual, you know, getting out of a car and talking about engineering, going through lots of squiggly lines, and it's it's obviously part of the sport. But to be honest, there's nothing beats good feeling in a car and just relaying that to an engineer. At the end of the day, it does the same job. Well, if you were giving advice to some kid who came to you and asked, "I want to be a racing car driver." What would be the first step towards getting to that goal? Um, I, look, I, I don't. There, I don't think there's any one magical answer to that. As everyone does it a different way. Um, when when I first met Matt Campbell, he, you know, him and his granddad had, you know, as much money as I had, which was next to nothing, you know, to put into motor racing. So it was a really, always going to be a difficult task. But he's managed to get there, you know, through contacts and everything else. I think you know you've got to put. I would suggest to people that they try and put all their eggs in one basket. So if you're you're focused on doing something, try and do it to the absolute best of your ability. If it's an opportunity to race a Formula Ford, make sure it's with the best team and the best driver and the best engineers. And it's going to cost you more. But if you're any good, you'll straight away go to the go towards the top, if not the top. So you prove to yourself one, you're good enough to do it. And then, you know, okay, you only had enough money to do one race or one test or whatever it might have been. But people start talking, you know, I think people recognize really good talent. So if you have got that sort of talent and you, the cream comes to the top at the end of the day, if you can get to the top, people start to talk and that opens doors. And that's, that's what's got to sort of happen. Money obviously helps and that's an important part of it. But, um, you know, if there's any mentoring programs or, you know, sponsorship, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know in this sport. So it's getting to know people, getting yourself out there and, and meeting the right people, I guess. And, um, that's certainly my advice, I think, for a young driver. But Paul, just taking a step away from motorsport, your other sport that you had an opportunity to go professional at with wakeboarding and water skiing, are you still uh, <laughs> out behind the boat? <laughs> he keeps bringing up this weight thing, Paul. I don't know what's going on. No, there. no, wakeboarding, not wakeboarding. <laughs> wakeboarding. I was never good at anything else other than motor racing, unfortunately. I, I played soccer for six months. I played football for six months and decided that team sports were not my, I wasn't cut out for team sports, put it that way. So anything that involves more than one person behind the wheel is no good to me. But although rallying has been interesting, it's been, it's been really cool getting involved with a navigator because, you know, a very good navigator is you're putting your life in their hands and it's, I wasn't sure how I'd go with that, but it actually works really well. And, you know, I just make sure I use really good people, you know, that actually are good at their job. You know, we, I went up with, we had, I had three or four unbelievable navigators in the last, four years you know leading up to winning targa and um they they're, they're as good as the drivers you know at the end of the day that they, they know their job and um 
Yeah, good fun. Um, but yeah, no, never very good in other sports. Even the, golf. Um, I, I love to love to think I can play golf, and all I can do is slice into the into the into the scenery. That's all I'm good at. You love oh, you to think you could wakeboard too. <laughs> <laughs> the, you talk about uh, navigators in rallying. It, it's a two two way street, isn't it? They're relying on you, and you're relying on them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and navigators are smart. You know, professional navigators can can control a driver as much as the driver the driver can drive the car. You know, they've only got to call a, a caution early, and you'll slow down because you don't you, you're out there to try and live, obviously, not to not to fire into the trees. So they're smart. They're smart operators. But you know, I think they also they recognise if the driver's in control and doing a good job, and they they push the driver if they feel comfortable. But um, it is a very unique sport, and I think that's that in latter years it really you know target rallies were very appealing to me and i do i still think you know people ask me what's the best event or the best track you've ever driven on or anything else you know i, I still rate Targa tasmania is probably the highlight of anything i've ever done it, it's you know it's how many 45 different tracks over over six different days and you don't even get to practice on them you know it's like just driving blind it's like doing the nurburgring multiple times but you know you do it front the right way once then backwards the next way and then you start halfway and go the reverse direction it's it's just an interesting concept and it really does test you as a driver how, does know, it, how did that all come about? about what's that the two the targets how did it come about yeah um it, it started off well i guess as a kid i grew up, grew up down there and i spent a lot of time on the road so it was an opportunity to do it legally what i used to do as a kid so it was a great opportunity to get out there and have a closed road next so what were you saying you were going <laughs> you did know what the roads went which way they went no you never know even even on roads you know really well you'd never 100 percent remember all the corners it's just thousands of corners but um that's what notes are for but um, you know, I, I think the first ever rally I did was with, uh, with Lotus where they got, they gave me a, a standard series one, Elise, which I think is probably the best, the best road car I've ever driven. The series one, Elise has to be the best car I've ever driven. Big call, I know, but, um, it is, it's like a formula. Are Ford. you wearing your Lotus jacket now? No, I'm not. No. <laughs> but, um, it was good fun. They said, they, they said, there's the boat, here's the car, see you when you come back. And I didn't even know what a target rally was really but i met my navigator down in tassie off the boat and away we went and we ended up on the podium you know third outright at our first ever target i did bounce off quite a bit of stuff but uh, <laughs> luckily i managed to keep going and that sort of yeah as much as everyone said our oh, circuit races don't have a great a great record down here at target i managed to survive and from that moment on i improved i crashed less every time and eventually got to the point where i won it I think Jim Richards could uh, probably allay that to a bit of rest too with the, the amount of times he won uh, one Targa. Um, you did Targa in uh, the, the first of the Gallardos that basically landed in the country. You, you took off and you, I think you won the first day and then the second day wasn't so good. Yeah, no, <laughs> no we had a, a mismatch of tyres which worked really well in the dry and in the wet when it rained, it wasn't so good. So yeah, I went from hero to zero very quickly and managed to, to bin that one. But um, look, the, the cars were difficult I guess the four-wheel drive system in those cars was quite tricky. Um, and, yeah, I, th I thought I was uh, on for a win that year. And then we we crashed, obviously, um, going back, looking over. It was pretty silly. You know, we probably should have pulled our head in a little bit. But um, it was a good experience. And, you know, ultimately it's all it all goes into the memory bank and you fight in the next time and you make less mistakes. And eventually you get to a point where you, you, can, you can actually win the event. I'm going to get you to really think deep about this one, Paul. What's been your greatest experience in motorsport and what's been the one that's just about brought you to tears and i don't mean happy tears i mean the sad type the sad part um 
the sad part's pretty easy. There's been there's been a couple of drivers I've lost during during the course of events. Um, Stuart McColl's tragic accident with Volkswagen when I was his teammate was was a very hard one to to accept because it was so close to to home. And you know there's been a couple of examples of that over the years. I don't think you spend this amount of time in motor racing and not not see the the ugly side of motorsport. And it, it does does make you question it occasionally, but. Um, you know, even Targa, we've, we've had a bad runner down at Targa and, you know, we've, we've lost friends down there as well. So it's, that, that, that part of it's really hard, but, um, you know, the safety side of it's always improving. I don't think you can ever make motor racing safe. You know, I'm, I'm sick of hearing about how are we going to do this and we're going to improve that and everything else. Look, at the end of the day, motor racing on a racetrack can be made safe, but rallying is always going to have its inherent danger. So that side of it's always difficult, but that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, as, as far as the most memorable event I've ever had it's oh, I guess winning my first Australian drivers championship you know that we'd I'd fought with Greg Murphy and we'd played catch up all year because the, we'd had a mechanic mechanical at the first round and I think there was only six rounds that year so we didn't have a lot of a lot of time to catch back up after having DNFs and you know I was behind for the whole championship and won it at the last race of the of the series you know I, I passed Greg on the track and and won the championship and that was Piranha's first championship as well. And um, that was, yeah, a pretty special day. It was pretty cool. Good celebration afterwards, I'd imagine. I can't remember. It must have been good. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Gaz, I think, um, I think yeah. we've dragged as much as we can out of uh, Paul. It's been he's fantastic. Not, he doesn't look like he's offering anything else up to us. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's been fantastic having this chat. Uh, really appreciate your time coming on. And uh, certainly, um, I guess... The thing is that a lot of young listeners who will be out there might gain some knowledge out of this and maybe some direction steers for themselves in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, it's, it's, uh, it's great to be able to, and there's a, there is a couple of podcasts that, um, uh, that I've been involved in that, that sort of help athletes and things like that. So, yeah, the, the mental approach to, to driving is, is as much, or any sport for that matter, is is almost as much as the the physical act of doing it. You know, it's um, you, you do enough training over the years, you sort of start to realise that ninety percent of what we do is you know mental. So anything that sort of points a driver in the right direction and gets their head in the right frame of mind, I think, is a good thing. And I think listening to old farts like me and and various other drivers that you that you have on here is a, is a great opportunity for people to learn. You know, they they, they it might need little bits and pieces they get out of it, but it's something that might go. Oh, actually, I might put that into my driving or whatever it is. You know, I still to this day, you know, use reaction pads and all kinds of things just to sort of tune, well, myself up, but also other drivers. And, you know, that was something we learned um, very early in the piece that, you know, you don't just go into a car cold. You need to be warmed up, same as you do in any other sport. So, you know, just warming up before you get in the car, whether it be visualisation or actualization or just warm-up exercises or reaction balls or whatever it might be, something that just tunes your mind up is a really good thing to do. Paul, tell us... About driving events, what you do day to day now, what what it is that that has Paul Stokel busy? Yeah, I guess I, I I moved up to Queensland after leaving Lamborghini years ago, and with the promise of uh, I guess a, a a job up here with Sharon Motorsport, and um, that ended up lasting about twelve months. So I did some driving with them in Carrera Cup, that opened a door into the minis, and I did the minis for a couple of years, and we obviously won a championship with the mini series as well, which was. You know, to some people, a step backwards. I guess it was like doing the the theatre theatre Bathurst. So people would say, "What the hell are you doing that for?" And you go, "Well, it's it's a job." You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, you need to earn a living as well. So, 
the mini thing was a, a good challenge. It was it was good fun, and um, yeah, from there I I eventually opened up my own business doing that same thing. So pretty much driver training, you know, from defensive driving right through to advanced car control, and you know I've got a few Lotuses we use for for training on the circuit. I've got a couple of radicals, and we race those as well as do experiences in them and track days and corporate events and all kinds of things. So it's, it keeps me very busy. You know, I'm a, I'm a one-man band, but um, I enjoy what I'm doing and they've probably been doing it too long now. So time to, time to move on, but um, it is a good fun. Well, Paul Stokel, thank you so much for joining us on the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. And of course, uh, you're, you're allowed to refer your customers to the NapaAutoParts.com.au forward slash academy. Probably have a good look at it yourself and see if you can learn anything, even uh, join in. It's free for young drivers to, to get a bit more advice. Well, me being a young buck, I fit right in there. So that'll be good. But uh, no, I, de- I definitely have a look. And it's, you know, if there's opportunities, as I said, back in my day, there wasn't opportunities like that. So it's great that this sort of thing is there and it's giving, you know, another avenue for drivers to look at stuff and then learn and, you know, hopefully progress their careers. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Paul. No worries, Gary and uh, Darren. Look forward to catching up at the track. Well, fantastic. That was uh, excellent to have Paul on our podcast, Gary, wasn't it? That uh, has certainly gone down to be uh, episode number four. He joins an illustrious group. He certainly does. And speaking of Tasmanians, it was only just over a week ago, uh, well, a week and a half ago, that a Tasmanian won the HQ Nationals. First time in 29 years that uh, a Tasmanian ac- actually won that championship. Phil Aston at Hidden Valley won the final. It was meant to go over 19 laps. Well, it did, but it was interrupted with a red flag situation, two laps from the end. And for some reason, they restarted it after two laps and Phil maintained his lead. Hasn't been done for a long time. And the irony of that is that the whole series started in Tasmania to begin with. So it's good to see that a Tassie... Uh, Starwood has come through and won it. He's a multiple Tasmanian champion as well. Of course, Townsville two weekends ago was a a massive weekend, as was the HQ Nationals, as you've just touched on, Gary. That was um, Mr. Aslan did a a tremendous job taking that out. And uh, we looked at Townsville and one of our uh, Napa Academy, um, I guess, uh, races had a a good weekend. Young Clay Richards, uh, third generation Racer has won a, uh, a round of the national championship with the Toyota 86s. And... Well, well, he actually won a race, finished second for the round behind Lockie Gibbons, but uh, certainly a good job. And Zach Bates uh, got back into a bit of form, finished third. Uh, you have to say that uh, it'd be a great present for uh, his father, Steve, who uh, actually the day after had his 50th birthday. Yeah, tremendous way to celebrate. And we, we all know, you know, as parents, you, you start to live vicariously by your children. And um, it's great to see Stephen throwing his, his efforts behind. He's not afraid to, to pull on the, uh, the overalls and, and dig right in. I think he just waits for Clay to dig right in and then he joins him in, in there and gets it in there. We've seen it with, uh, we've seen it with Jason and, uh, and his, Jason Bagwana and his boys as well, how, how he will jump in and, and get dirty and get the things underway. Um, some, Machinery wrecked in uh, uh, the Carrera Cup, wasn't there? Oh, oh yeah. It was a, well, what a debacle that first race was with the top three excluded for taking too long on their last lap. Yeah, um, it's a, it's a funny twice, old rule. It's a yeah, funny it's old a, rule, that one, isn't it? It is. It's, they were over twice the uh, lap time of the winner 
who was one of the ones excluded, but they were behind a safety car, so they couldn't go any faster anyway. That's right. Anyway, they protested, protests were upheld. So those three drivers, uh, I think it was uh, Luke Gildon, Jackson Walls and Callum Hedge were given back their placings from the first race. And overall on the weekend, the Kiwi Hedge uh, won the round ahead of... Um, uh, who was second then? Uh, I tell you what, hasn't Callum Head come on gangbusters in season 2022? Well, from Formula Fords into Porsches, uh, we, yeah. what we're talking about with uh, Paul Stokel earlier, you know, like Formula Ford, such a great category and certainly opens the doors for you in far as driving ability goes to get them where they were. And there's Other a lot of news around Formula Ford at the moment too, with a new, new chassis and things sort of being discussed. And I guess those details thrashed out. We probably won't touch that here today, but... Still, plenty of racing went on uh, on at Townsville. Oh, um, super two, super And I just got to say, yeah, uh, we're you know in a couple of weeks' time, the first weekend in August, we're going to be at uh, at TQ Raceway or or QR Raceway, whichever way you want to look at it, and want to send our uh, thoughts to to Tony as he recovers after his uh, nasty crash in the Porsche on the weekend as well, and uh, hopefully he'll be up and about, and we'll see him trackside at uh, at the uh, Shannon's Motorsport Australia Championship round uh, 4th, 5th and 6th of uh, of August at uh, at QR. Yeah, yeah, bad accident, uh, suspected broken leg, fractured ribs and a punctured lung, I believe, but um, in a stable condition. We're not going to be moving around much, are you? No, <laughs> so, um, I tell you what, that will not go down well with TQ. He like, he's a he's a pretty active fellow as it is. He won't like uh, having a leg in his car in a cast or anything like that. That won't sit well at yeah. all. And don't, don't forget, too, he likes to do the odd rally. He's done uh, quite a few uh, rallies in the Queensland and uh, northern New South Wales. So, yeah, we hope he gets gets uh, well soon and gets back to running that new look Queensland raceway. But um, I was going to touch on uh, Super 2, Super 3. Man, was there some uh, incidents happening there as well? Hasn't the Super 3 from... I'm going to say 10 years ago, it was more than 10 years ago when it was some, some blokes living the dream and doing, uh, doing laps in, in old supercars. It's now, uh, it's now absolutely the step on the ladder to get into a, uh, a supercars career, isn't it? You've got to come through those ranks and learn how to drive those heavy cars on, on not a lot of amount of tires and the unique aspect of the Australian touring car landscape. Uh, it's a, it's a real legitimate business now, isn't it? It is, and you look at the Super 3 guys, the front runners there, um, mainly Kai Allen was running for Eagles and Motorsport and uh, Brad Bourne in the Anderson Motorsport Falcon. They were hammer and tongs, and uh, they were mixing it with quite a few of the Super three, uh, Super 2 guys in that race, which uh, you know just shows that those blokes have got plenty of pace, and they're certainly not going to hang around in this category for too long. They'll be in a Super 2 car probably next year, and then uh, uh, I know that Kai Allen's even been... Uh, have spending time in the Erebus pits up at Townsville. So, you know, you got to, they're getting them in early and they're, um, they're getting nurtured. I think it sends a, a pretty clear message to the guys that are, that are, you know, the, the lucky 24 at the moment, doesn't it? Sends them a big message that a, hey, uh, you make a mistake or if you, if you do the wrong thing, there's plenty of other options for these team owners to look over their shoulder and uh, see who's coming up behind. Indeed. And uh, also, while we were on the subject of Townsville, Touring Car Masters. And we had Ryan Hansford get uh, the two wins that counted because the last race was declared a non-event. And uh, Ryan certainly had the pace in that uh, Holden Tirana. And Tirana's actually really benefited from the Townsville circuit 
very nimble uh, five-litre cars that just seem to be the car to be on. Uh, they finished first, second and third overall in the points with uh, John Power's second, Andrew Fisher, who leased the car for that event uh, and possibly for some more events to come because his Falcon is going through a development program to try and get some more pace out of it. Showed he's got plenty of speed uh, to be up so so far up the field. And unfortunately, um, one bad incident in that last race where um, Michael Armin had a brake failure in the white line racing Chev Camaro and ploughed into the back of Cam Tilly's Valiant Pacer down at turn three and stuck it right into the tyre barrier. And very unfortunate. You've got to really feel for, for Cam because they put their heart and soul and just about every cent they got into that car. And uh, up until this year, it had been often coming home with damaged car. And this year was looking so brilliant. Uh, with a win at the last round uh, in Sydney uh, at the last race there. And unfortunately, have all back to square one for him to have to rebuild that car or whether he's got the motivation to do it now, I don't know. I tell you what was pretty cool also on the late in the Friday uh, afternoon or mid, mid-afternoon, the trophy race for the Touring Car Masters. And uh, the Western General Body Works driver, Danny Bazadzik, got up for a win. And uh, that car is is magnificent. It's done in the, the Alan Grice uh, cigarette branding type of uh, livery. And uh, Danny Bazadzik, what, what a great what a great bloke. He's one of those guys that you walk through the pits and you can hear Danny laughing. And depending on your mindset at the time, you either turn towards it or you turn the other way and go, I'm not going to get dragged into that. But uh, really cool to see that. And um, and as you meant, Tony Karafanovsky get out there and um, in second place Tony in that race. Had- yeah, unfortunately, Tony had an accident later yes. on. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of Danny, he had pace that we've never seen before in this series. He was he was as quick as those front running Tiranas. He just had a bit of bad luck in in race two where they broke a gearbox or second gear to be precise. So had to come through from uh, in race one that was in race two he came from the back of the field up the fifth. So had pace all weekend to be right at the forefront if. It have been in the right circumstances. Yeah, he's quick at Sydney Motorsport Park as well. I know in the reverse grid race, he was on the front row, but he actually managed to to hold on to a top four finish there as well. So big things coming for uh, the panel leader from the western suburbs of Melbourne there, Danny, and we look forward to seeing what he can uh, what he can do. Gaz, I think we've uh, just about covered it uh, covered it off. That was a couple of weekends ago with the, uh, yeah, the HQ I, Nationals. And... I think the only thing we need to mention now coming up to the end of July will be the uh, SA Super Sprint and at the Bend where we've got the uh, Carrera Cup again running. If Hopefully all the cars will be repaired. The Super Utes are back. Uh, National Sports Sedans round three will be down there. And Aussie racing cars are back out and running. So that should be a reasonably good event down outside of um, Tail and Bend. Certainly uh, the other one in there, just mentioning sports sedans, the Victorian Sports Sedan Association is running uh, the fourth round of the Victorian Championships at Sandown the second weekend of August as well. So we're looking forward to getting all the cars out. It'll be nice and chilly. It always is uh, at Sandown at that time of the year, but get a great turnout. So uh, keep an eye out. For that one, uh, I think uh, I one, think we've... just one last thing uh, before that Sandown event, you'll probably be at Queensland Raceway for the uh, Shannon's Motorsport Australia Championships on August five to seven. Um, I might even be there myself. I'd like to think I 
will be, but we'll wait and see. Um, we'll get the band back together for some uh, yeah. production cars, I guess. Uh, TCR Australia are racing their GT World Championship with there, so Paul will be running, so a good chance to catch up with him again. Uh, Trans Am Series, Radical Cup, Porsche Sprint Challenge, and production cars. Now, I believe... Um, it's not being published yet, but TCM, Touring Car Masters, won't be at that meeting. They were scheduled to be there originally, but I think they've uh, decided to skip that meeting and possibly end up somewhere in South Australia around early December. They're, they're, they're trying to push for that, aren't they? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can see that uh, that coming a mile off. Well, thank you very much, Gary O'Brien and Paul Stokel, our fantastic guest today. And, of course, Grant's wrap-up with the uh, Napa Academy uh, racer there as well. Thanks for joining us for episode four and uh, tune in for more Gaz and Daz in yeah, weeks to thank, come. Thanks, Daz. See you soon. Bye. You've just listened to another Network R production. 